If you're new or visiting with us this morning, welcome. We are so glad that you're here. I got to meet a couple of you, and what a great, what a great thing to have you guys come. It's a, I was telling Chris, a high schooler earlier, it's a risky thing to come to church when you, when you don't know anybody. And so thank you for taking that risk. And part of the joy of being in a smaller church is that we actually get to know each other. And so I'd love to be able to take you guys out for coffee or tea or caramels and like we don't have to do caffeine. I know that's the Christian drug of choice, but <laughs> we can do anything. Uh, just a chance to get to know each other and share our stories. So would love for you to be able to be able to do that with you. Um, if you want, there's that welcome card in the pew back, either behind you or in front of you. And you can take that out and share your name and your phone number and throw it in. Um, we will not sell your information in, <laughs> unless we, we really need the money. Um, so financial update is in September, by the way. So. <laughs> Let me share with you what we do every single week. And I think it's so important that we define what it is that we believe and we define what it is that success is because I know that come Saturday night, I forget. Amen. So let me share this with you. We believe that the story of Scripture, which is most beautifully articulated in Isaiah 61, is this, that there is hope beyond our brokenness, that, that those of us who are brokenhearted, who are wounded, who are blind, who are deaf, who are lost, that what God does is He comes to us and He rescues us and He binds up our brokenhearted and He sets us captives free and He makes us who are crippled by the weight of our grief and our mistakes. He gives us new legs and new life. Amen? Amen. The second thing we believe is that, is that then we, we become people who start to learn how to trust our risen Savior. And Jesus is alive and presence in, present in our midst. I hope you could feel his presence and his love for you as we sang. Wasn't that beautiful? Thank you, Hillary and the worship team. It was so good. And this is what God, God wants for you is to learn how to trust him. And trust is a relationship word, right? Trust and belief and faith, they're all the same word. They mean the same thing. But it's a relationship word. It's not a performance word. It's not a... Um, Get your life together right the heck now word. It's not a work really hard and prove how great you are before God word. It is a relationship with a word that the kind of relationship that we're having with Jesus is a, is a one that's defined by trust. That he's bigger than us. He's stronger than us. He's better than us. And that he absolutely adores you. And so we can trust him with our doubts, with our successes, all of it. Does that make sense? And finally, then, as we sing, right, that you would fill me with your heart and then lead me to love those that are around me. The Christian life is so, I love being a Christian because I don't like being religious. Let's not be religious, amen? amen. How, about, how about this? In our deep woundedness and brokenness, what if we said yes to the God of the universe pouring his unconditional love in us so that it would just fill us up and then and push out everything that's not of him, and then this love would just spill out over into our lives? How, how about that? And that's not because of our effort. That's because of his goodness and generosity. That's the picture of mission. 
That's what mission looks like. That's what sharing God with your neighbor looks like, is being the kind of person that just pours out love to your neighbor no matter where they are. Pours out love to your children no matter how much of a twit they've been. Pours out love to your grandchildren no matter how much you think they should be more respectful. It pours out love to your spouse even if you feel like you might have fallen out of love. Does that make sense? That's what we believe. And so each one of those beliefs comes with a choice, and each week we make that choice. So let's make that choice again today, and let's read this together. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join join Jesus in his resurrection work. Yes, we join Jesus in his resurrection work, meaning you do not have to invent what to do next. God is already working. Join him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open scripture in the book of John, I pray that your spirit would rest upon us, that you would mute every distraction, that you would bind up every, the enemy that's seeking to distract us or, or lead us away, that you would open our ears, that you would open our eyes, that the numbness that comes from, the callousness that comes from being wounded, Lord, that it would crack open so that our hearts might feel something brand new today. We give you permission to speak to our spirits, to do work where you remove the old lies that we might be laboring under. We give you permission, Holy Spirit, to do this work. We need you, Jesus. So protect us and bless us during this time. And all God's beloved children said, Amen. We've been in the book of John, and for the next two weeks, we're going to be in John chapter 11. But I want to give you a little bit of background, picking up where Paul left off last week as he talked about Jesus being the good shepherd, okay? So here we are, John chapter 10. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about being a good shepherd. John chapter 10, read this with me. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Um, so it's the end of December in Jerusalem, the time when the Jews celebrated the Feast of Dedication. It used to be that when I would read a sentence like this, since I didn't know what it mean, I would just sort of shrug and move on. And then I, I, I got a, a scholarship to go to seminary. And they have a library. And so I would get out of my house and get on the bus and go to seminary. And 45 minutes later, I would get into the library. This is wading through snow in New Jersey, right? And then I would open up the, the book, right, that I had to go find. So like two hours later, I'd go find that book. What is the Feast of Dedication? And then that book would tell me. And then... Al Gore invented the internet, and, and it was incredible, right? And now, you know what I do when I don't know what something means? I just Google it on my phone, and right, like I didn't need to go to seminary, I just needed to wait till Google came out, right? Don't trust Google. 
Don't trust Google? I'm okay. So what did I learn this week from the Feast of Dedication? Because I didn't know what this was, right? So the Feast of Dedication is a celebration every single winter that marks the time when in 166 BC, um, the Jews finally kicked out the Seleucid Empire, the Greeks, in their hometown. Uh, in 334 Alex BC, Alexander the Great came through. Do you remember that? Some of you, yes, I was there. <laughs> 334 BC, Alexander the Great, he was a Greek guy. He came in and he took over Jerusalem. And then when he died, his empire was divided into four parts. And um, there was the, the, the Seleucid Empire under the reign of Ptolemy started in that area. And so that lasted for a long time. But the Greeks were not very nice to the Jews. The Greeks thought that Judaism was completely backwards. So starting in 334 BC, they did a couple of things which caused tremendous trauma in this nation. They outlawed Hebrew. And that's why Greek, the New Testament is written in Greek because then Greek became the language of commerce. If you wanted to do any business, you had to speak Greek. And Hebrew was lost for 300 years. No, 150 years. Okay? Second thing that they did is that they, they started sacrificing pigs in the Holy of Holies. This is called the abomination of desecration. Desecrate means to soil or to injure or to mar. And so what the, Jew, what the Greeks did is that they wanted to take this holy place and turn it into a pagan temple where it would never again be used to worship this God called Yahweh. Does that make sense? So in 167 BC, there was a guy named Joseph Maccabeus. Maccabeus in Hebrew means the hammer. <laughs> hammer time, baby. So Joseph Maccabeus, he was a big dude, like 6'2", 250. He was a big dude. He had sons that were all taller than him. So the offensive line of the Oakland Raiders showed up and said, it's time to kick the Greeks out, and they did. They won an enormous battle, and in 166 BC, so the battle raged for almost a year, and they won back Jerusalem and kicked the Greeks out of Israel. And in 166, they rededicated the temple to God. And this is called the Feast of Dedication. Okay? Now, what Maccabeus did, the hammer, what MC did... See what I, you picking up what I'm, anyways, what Maccabeus did is actually something really important. He, he instituted two changes, which changed the known world. Joseph Maccabeus said, um, we need to teach Hebrew. Now the best of the Greek culture was to teach rich children in a, what's called a gymnasium. That was the original school. That's the idea of school was started by Greeks. But it's for the rich kids. And what Maccabeus did is said, I want schools in every single town to teach all of the children in Israel. And for the first time in world history, the idea of teaching all children started with the Jews. And then Joseph Maccabeus said, you know what? Um, in case another foreign empire comes in and takes over the temple and defames it again and desecrates it again, 
I want to prevent sort of a national re-traumatization, and I'm going to have this thing, let's do this thing called, uh, where we take the big temple and we turn it into a mini temple, and we put it in each community. And so for the first time in history, Joseph Maccabeus instituted this idea called church, where there would be a local congregation where people from the neighborhood could come and worship God, and we didn't have to go all to the mothership. Does that make sense? The Jewish word for the local church is synagogue. That's what Maccabeus brought to the world. So Jesus... 167 BC, so 160, 171 years before, 162 years before Jesus shows up, was born. So Jesus is in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast of dedication. Do you got the context? Okay. Now remember, Jesus had wrecked every major Jewish holiday up until this point. Do you remember that? Passover, he whips all of the animals and they come fleeing. Pentecost, he heals the man at the pool and all of the focus is on him and how he can do miracles. Then in the fall at the Festival of Booths, right when the, you know, they're pouring out the living water to celebrate water being given at the, uh, the Rock of Horeb and it's about to clean off the altar from all of the sacrifices representing that this water that God gives will make us clean. Jesus stands up and says, I'm the living water. Anybody who's thirsty comes to me to drink. Can you imagine being a pastor and every single Sunday someone stands up and wrecks it? I would would be nervous if they kept on coming into the door, right? It's kind of shaky, like, what are you going to do next? So Jesus shows up. And this is why the Jews say, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, okay, how long, how long are you going to keep us in suspense here? If you are the Christ, just tell us plainly, please no more parables, right? I, I, don't, I don't need a metaphor. Just say, yep, that's me. Give me a card, something, right? Just tell me, Okay. So this is great. Jesus answered them. Read, read this with me. I told you. Okay, wait. Just that. That's it, Wendy. That's it. When you read scripture, slow it down, right? Jesus, like I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's names, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And I can just imagine all of the Jews, their their gears are just grinding, and they're like, he's not saying yes or no. He's not giving me a plain answer. He's telling me more stuff. Like, I can't handle this. Look at this. Jesus kind of picking a fight. Watch this. Read this with me. My sheep hear my voice. That's Paul's sermon last week, right? And I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. All of their eyebrows just went up. A carpenter gives eternal life? I thought you built cabinets. What? And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Like Jesus got strong hands. He's a carpenter, but what are you talking about? Are you... 
Can you imagine me if the person who kept on interrupting church, I sat down with him, I took him out to coffee and said, okay, like you've got to quiet down here. And they said, oh, it's okay. Um, All of the people in your church, um, you know, Andy, you, you don't really believe. Like you're not one of God's sheep. You don't hear his voice. But all of your people do. And by the way, um, they're going to start following me now, and there's nothing you can do about it because you can't snatch them out of my hand. Um, they're going to be mine. How, how do you think I would feel at that coffee? All right? Slightly unemployed, yes? So, verse 29. Now, Jesus then even ramps it up even more. My father who has given them to me. So he's telling the Jewish pastors that my heavenly father has given all of us to Jesus. He's saying, I'm, all the people, they're mine. And my heavenly father, he's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And then he drops this nuclear bomb. I and the father are one. Now, how... Like, that's kind of a conversation stopper. Have you ever done that? Where that thing you say ends the conversation? My brother has a dance. It goes like this. He does it on purpose. My older brother stops, like wrecks conversations, on, says uncomfortable things, so that everybody's like, I don't even know where we go from here. Right? And then he does the dance. <laughs> Thanksgiving is awesome. So Jesus, he just ends this conversation. And what do the Jews do? Read 31 with me. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. He's claiming he's God. He's not just claiming he's the Messiah. Jesus is claiming he's God. And so for Jews, it's like, this is blasphemy, right? This is nothing short of blasphemy. This is nuts. And so they're ready to give him a Christmas gift with the rock in the face. The, uh, the pastors are understanding clearly who Jesus is claiming to be. So this is the backdrop of, of John chapter 11, okay? So Jesus hustles out of Jerusalem. He doesn't want to get killed. And he passes the suburb of Bethany, which is two miles outside of the city center. And then he keeps on going. And while he's leaving, going back home to the Sea of Galilee, right, to Capernaum where he is, He gets a text from his dear friends, Mary and Martha. It's a messenger. And they say, come back. Lazarus, your friend, our brother, is sick. Verse 4. Mary and Martha need a miracle. So let's read together. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus, finally sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now you've met Mary and Martha before. Do you remember them? Luke chapter 10, if you've been in church at all, you might have read the story before. Remember this? Jesus shows up. Mary and Martha, they're there. They're like, hey, Jesus, come on. And Mary and Lazarus hang out with Jesus because Mary is the kind of person where she is who she's with. 
You know that kind of person? That they're so present with who they are that they're just, they're fully there. It's like my wife. When my, my wife is picking up my son from the airport right now so I can talk about her. Um, <laughs> my, my wife, when she leaves to go on a trip, she doesn't call me. She doesn't text me. There's nothing. Because she's fully present with the people that she's with on that trip. Me, when I go on a trip, I'm texting every hour, every two hours. I'm alive. Where are my keys? Right? You know, like, I'm constantly in contact. Not with my wife. Like, whoever she's with, she's fully with. I'm like Martha. Martha is always doing something, right? Can you relate? Maybe there's a part of you that's Mary. Maybe there's a part of you that's Martha. Maybe you're all Martha. Maybe you're all Mary, right? Martha's busy, and she says to Jesus, hey, is anybody going to help me make the guacamole? Can you, like, bring Mary back here? Like, what's going on? And Jesus is, you know, wants to clarify for Martha what's really important. He says, look, be with me now, and then we can make guacamole together. And the idea is this, is that for us, us Marthas, we get, we get busy doing things for God, and, we, and then we get angry. We, get, do we do things for our families. We do things for our friends. And at the same time, when, when we're in a stressed out place, we get angry that they don't receive our love or they're not, you know, that they're not wowed by our guacamole. Does that make sense? And Jesus is like, you kind of got it upside down there. Like, hang out with me. Bring me with you wherever you go. Don't worry about the guacamole. We'll make it together. You picking up what I'm putting down? That's what we learned about Mary and Martha. So, okay. Verse 4. Jesus gets the text. What happens? Read this with me. When he heard this, So we're going to go through each one of these verses because this is a passage, again, that you could read as a chunk and then just sort of move on. But this is the heart. Jesus is saying some really important stuff here. So let's slow it down just a minute. Jesus gets the tech. Mary and Martha are freaked out. Lazarus is on his deathbed. He's not doing well. Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. So and what's the first thing that we learn? God knows how everything is going to work out. Say that with me. God knows how everything is going to work out. So you freaking out about how, whether or not things are going to work out the way that you want them to, you have to ask yourself at some point, is this helpful? Some of you are like, yes, it is. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> Second thing that we learn this is not going to end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. The word glory in Hebrew is the word kavod. It literally means the weight of God's goodness. The weight of God's goodness. We literally sang today in, in Hillary's song selection that God would be glorified, that we would see his goodness, that our life would be built on the foundation of his goodness and love. 
That is God's glory. It's this, it's this idea that when you look back on your life, you're going to be so awestruck by the idea because you're going to be able to see every single moment when God took your pain and took your foolishness and took the weight of this world's brokenness and he transformed all of that for something good and beautiful and it's going to bring you to tears. Does that make sense? Like that's what God does. So you're still going to go through all of that hard stuff But the glory of God is the weight of his goodness in a moment in your life when you can go, oh my gosh, I get it. Doesn't happen all the time, but it's there. And and Jesus is saying, I know how this is going to work out. And when all of us look back on this, we're going to go, wow, God, you are really good. What's the third thing that we learn? Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Hmm. Okay, that's good to know. I wonder why John put this in there. It's because verse 6 is coming. Verse 6, read this with me. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Jesus stays put. It's an agonizing closeness to the situation. He's close enough to do something, but he's not there. So what do we know after reading these verses? We know that Jesus knows how it's going to end. We know that when we look back on the situation in our life that's full of grief and sorrow and despair that we're going to be able to see how God is so good in the middle of it all. And we also have this experience at times in our life when we ask God to show up and we know he can do something about the pain that we're in. And yet it feels like he's absent It feels like we're completely alone. It feels like our prayers are not working. It can even feel like God is angry with us because he's not there. Have you ever felt that? I think that's the one thing that all of us have in common. When we found out that our oldest son, Jonah, who's 14, had a stroke before he was born, we texted and emailed and called hundreds of people and asked them to pray. And within a week, we had gotten word back that hundreds weren't praying, like tens of thousands of people were praying for our son. And so when our son was born at Children's Hospital in Pennsylvania, he, April had a C-section so that we wouldn't damage his head because he had a stroke and a bleed in his brain. And, and they rushed him out, and it was so great. The first thing he did is he peed on me, and it was like, that's my boy. And then, and then you know, I was so excited. And, and, and then they rushed him off to a CAT scan. And the CAT scan still showed the damage due to the stroke, which was pretty significant. And, but it, I, I knew that God had, had healed my son. I knew that the damage would probably still be there, but I knew that given the plasticity of brains and what was happening, like Jonah was going to be just fine. And the first couple of months, like, like, come on, man. 
Like, he's totally fine. Like, everything's great. He's developing normally. All these amazing things are happening. And he's like the cutest kid in the entire world. I mean, like, people were saying, have you called Gerber? Like, you need to call Gerber. Like, this, like this kid. I, I, I know he's mine, but objectively, right? Come on, right? It's a cute kid. Dietrich might have him beat. Where's... Where is Dietrich? Is Dietrich here? Is Dieter here today? Oh, man. He's in Sunday school. That kid. Oh, my gosh. So, and then, and then his development started to slow. And then at 18 months old, my little boy with his cute little glasses, he, he started having seizures half an hour, one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours long. And I remember sitting in my car in my garage, which was the only safe place for me to kind of emote. And I was screaming at God, like yelling at him, like, you say you love me. You have tens of thousands of people pray for me. You give, like everybody has, well, God gave me a word, like God's going to heal your boy. Like, this is it. Like all of these people are calling me and telling me this and and now you're taking away more of his brain capacity with these never-ending seizures that won't stop. Like, what the heck is going on, God? Where are you? Why don't you show up and do something? And we've had that experience, right? Every single one of us. And in those moments, we need answers. And oftentimes, we don't get answers. So what, the, what John is doing here in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 11, is he's going to pull back the curtains a little bit. And he's saying, I know, we're like Mary and Martha, and we're dying in a pile, and we're full of grief, and we're in pain, and it's legit, and it's real, and we're freaking out. I know it. But let me show you what Jesus is doing behind the scenes. Here it is. Ready? John chapter 11, verse 11. Read with me. After Jesus had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Such a great response from the disciples. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. That is so fantastic, right? Sick people need their sleep. You make sure you get lots of sleep, sweetheart. You'll get better. Jesus pinching the bridge of his nose, says, 14, so he told them plainly, okay, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let's go. So Jesus is going to do something with Mary and Martha and Lazarus that is going to convince the disciples of who he claims to be. And right at that moment, something totally surprising happens. Verse 16. Then Thomas, also known as the twin, in your Bibles it might say Didymus. That's the Greek word for twin. Thomas had a twin. I don't know what his name was. Javier, something like that. <laughs> then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go. Read it with me. Let us also go that we may die with him. 
so what is Thomas saying here? Well, you remember the context from John chapter 10? It was Chris, Christmas time. Well, I mean, the, nobody knows it is Christmas time, but it, it's Christmas time. It's the end of December. It's winter time, and Jesus claims to be God, and the Jews are going to stone him to death, and so he has to leave. And Thomas knows that if they go back to Bethany, right? Like if you, if you, if you go to Pismo Beach, you're going to run into somebody from Arroyo Grande, right? They're close. Bethany is that close. So if they go to Bethany, they're going to find somebody from Jerusalem there because Mary, North, and Lazarus have friends. They're well-known. And if they go back, the likelihood that they're arrested, tried, convicted, and, and killed is high. And so doubting Thomas says, I'll go with you, Jesus. I'll go with you. I got to see the famous painting by the Italian Caravaggio called The Incredulity of Thomas. It's called Doubting Thomas. This is the painting. And when April and I were rounding the corner in the museum, I saw this painting and I sat down on the bench and I just started crying. And I didn't, I didn't leave for 30 minutes. And it was warm and stuffy in the museum, just like it feels right now. And I was slightly sweating just like I, I am right now. And none of that mattered because I could not stop looking at Jesus taking Thomas's hand and pulling it close to him. I don't know why we call Thomas doubting Thomas. Thomas didn't have doubts. He had logic. Dead people don't come back to life. That's logic. So what did Thomas need? Thomas needed evidence. And Jesus gives him all the evidence he needs. Thomas's doubt, Thomas's disbelief, Thomas's needing evidence, Thomas's whatever you want to call it, it, it. I wouldn't say it's a character flaw. I would say that's just what Thomas needed in order to trust Jesus. And Jesus gives him that and he encourages and he says, come check it out. Like I have a body, I'm real. Put your finger in there. Like I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. Like come close to me with your doubts. So many of our friends, what they do when they doubt God, what they do when they need evidence from God is that they stand way, way, way far away from God. And God's over there and they're here and they say, prove it to me. And God's saying, okay, come here. Like, put your finger in my side. Prove that you have a body. Okay, come here. Like, put your finger in my side. No, you prove it first. Okay, come here. So what do you do with your doubt? What do you do with your need for evidence? What do you need for your need for answers? What do you do with your, your concern, your questions? Your, what, what do you do? You don't stay far away from God. You come to him. Because he's not worried about your questions. He's not worried about your doubts. Like your legitimate concern that he hasn't shown up when you were in deep pain, that doesn't freak him out. 
He wants to answer that for you. So draw near to him. And this is exactly what Jesus does with Mary and Martha. They're dying in a pile. And instead of insisting that they come close, what Jesus does is that he comes close. Verse 21, he shows up. He's walking down Mary's street. Mary rushes out to meet him. And this is what Mary says. Read this with me. Or sorry, Martha. This is what Martha says. Read this with me. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Martha's honest. Where were you? If you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And at the same time, She's full of hope because she knows that God can do whatever he wants to do. What a beautiful picture of faith. You have the permission to be angry and frustrated and pour out your laments with God. And at the exact same time, you can wait, not in fear, but with hope. Does that make sense? Right? I will wait for you. Didn't we sing that over and over and over again this morning? I will wait for you, God. I will wait for you. Not freaking out, not in despair, not, not assuming that God is absent. He's not going to show up. I'm going to wait for you in whatever situation is going in my life with the hope that you can do whatever it is that you want to do. And Jesus immediately addresses the most concerning thing in her mind. Your brother will rise again, verse 23. So Jesus has given her this beautiful pitch, and and Martha is going to swing and completely whiff. Verse 24, well, I know that he'll, you know, like rise again on the last day. I I get it. Thanks. You know, that's that's nice, Jesus. And Jesus, I'm imagining him placing his hands on her shoulders and looking at her and says, you don't understand what I'm saying. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection is not resuscitation. Resurrection is, is not you morally improving yourself. Resurrection isn't you trying harder, believing better, praying a prayer that sounds more sincere. No. Resurrection is God working in the middle of your brokenness, in the middle of your emptiness, and creating a brand new life to the point where you would say, whatever God is doing in me, I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was lost, but now I'm found. This is resurrection. And it's, and it's an event that happens. And then there's an ongoing thing that happens afterwards. So that's resurrection. And the ongoing thing is the life. And Jesus says to Martha, if if you believe in me, whoever believes in me, even even though you might die in your body, even though you might die in your relationships, even though you might die in your failures, whoever lives by believing in me, you'll never die. Meaning like those deaths won't define your life. There will be an undercurrent of life that will continue for every breath that you have and then continue for all eternity. That's good. Say amen. Amen. 
I know it's warm, y'all. I got two more minutes. Come on, shrug your shoulders. Stay with me. Stay in the pocket. Come on, here we go.